All right. Oh, yeah, they're here. Thanks a lot. Yeah, okay. Great. Um, um, as Sushil said in his last presentation, regulation normally is totally reactive. It's a pragmatic response. We must not let that happen again. And uh, they frequently don't explore whether the reforms of regulation that they introduce actually will necessarily help to stop uh, future crises. It's very rarely that the regulators go back to first principles and ask why are we regulating banks at all? And after all, we don't regulate supermarkets very much. Why do we regulate banks? What's, what are the first principles involved? Uh, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, history of which the early years I'm writing, in the years uh, that I actually looked at their archives, never ever once asked themselves, what are we doing and why are we doing it and is this the right way to go? Um, take perhaps the most famous financial reform that was introduced, which was the Basel I uh, capital requirement. Uh, this in turn was a reaction to the Mexican, Argentinian and Brazilian crisis of 1982 at which this major city center banks in New York were virtually all bust. And Congress was horrified by this and wanted to raise capital requirements on the American banks. The American banks formed up and said, well, if you just do it on us, the Japanese banks will take on all the business. And Paul Volcker was sent by Congress, in effect, to Basel to say we must introduce an international approach to capital requirements. Um, now, how did we get these numbers, the sort of 4% tier 1 and 8% tier 2? There was absolutely zero analytical study of what kind of capital requirements might be needed. In fact, nobody ever really asked the question. What actually happened was that the committee in general, and Peter Cook in particular, looked at what the present situation was and asked what is the highest requirement for Tier 1 and Tier 2 that we can now introduce that won't cause significant problems of adjustment to any of the, or, or to the majority of the major significant banks in all the major developed countries. And so that's exactly how we got it. Now, Basel 1 related only to credit risk. What we then had was a concern about what kind of requirements to apply in response to market risk analysis. And the Basel Committee, uh, bless her cotton socks, then turned to what was known as the building block approach, was that you took sort of groups of assets and you looked at the variance of these assets and you said we need more capital and these assets vary more. They'd never heard of covariance or the fact that if you can effectively diversify among assets whose uh, covariance is zero, you can effectively have a perfectly safe overall portfolio. And as you will appreciate, the building block approach was wildly technically inferior to the value-at-risk approach that was being developed by the banks themselves. Uh, the banks themselves at that point were beginning to introduce finance uh, analysts and finance economists like Fisher Black and Goldman Sachs and so on, 
And as a result, their risk management was considerably better than the, that adopted or were being adopted at the time by Basel. So what happened was that the regulators effectively got intellectually captured. They thought how splendid it is. We can piggyback on the much better analysis that is being done on risk management by the banks themselves. And effectively, the aim of regulation then and for most of the period has been not to make the system safer, but to try to bring each bank up to the risk control measures of the best banks within the system. Now, there are a lot of problems with this, as we all now know. One of them is that value at risk is very good for normal occasions, but it's useless for tail risk because you don't know how fat the tail is and you don't know whether you get beyond the 99% percentile, you're going absolutely to have a kind of massive great crash that we've just had or whether it's relatively minor. Moreover, the whole process was focused on the individual bank as indeed stress tests were and remain. And I can promise you that had a stress test been taken in June 2007, to look at the effect of a collapse in the housing market in the U.S. and in the subprime market, all banks virtually everywhere would have passed with totally flying colors. <laughs> the reason being, of course, that what the problem with the, with the stress test is it didn't take account of the fact that banks began to be nervous and concerned about the condition of other banks and that therefore you got the kind of breakdown of the wholesale markets that actually led the um, subprime um, collapse to become an overall total disaster. Now, why do we have bank regulation at all? Well, we shouldn't have it, although most regulators, I think, have, and in some cases still think, that the purpose of bank regulation is to make bankers behave better and to re reduce the risk-taking of banks. Now, that's actually wrong. Insofar as the risks are internalized so that those who take the risks not only get the benefits of the good outcomes but bear the costs of the bad outcomes, then there is no role whatsoever for an outside government in, uh, to intervene to affect that. Overall, sort of theory tells us that there are three main reasons why we, we should have or mainly have external intervention and regulation in various industries. And these are monopoly control, asymmetric inf information, otherwise known as consumer protection, and externalities. Um, and they become increasingly important as you go on. Monopoly control is relatively unimportant in the financial sector, though it comes occasionally, particularly with single markets with huge network externalities, where, <coughs> which effectively is a monopoly, and if it uh, has barriers to entry, then it can have major effects. Uh, but it's relatively minor uh, in finance. Asymmetric information or customer protection, of course, is much greater importance. Professionals have much greater knowledge, and they can extract rents as a result of that, the kind of issues that Paul was talking about. And, of course, uh, various measures have been introduced, deposit insurance, to try and protect the small customer who really doesn't have the time or the energy to do any due diligence on the bank himself. I mean, how many of you actually have any idea about the true status of the bank with which you're banking? I mean, I very rarely in my life ever have. 
and, of course, to prevent runs. But one of the problems here is that the premia are not usually related to the risk, as indeed are the bank taxes frequently not related to the risk, particularly when they're ex post, when they're ex post, as most in the industry seems to want, but by definition they're not related to the risk. And so you get risk shifting. And also, of course, you get risk shifting by bank shareholders because bank shareholders, being limited liability, have a structure of payoffs that is in the form of an option. And when you have an, a payoff in the form of an option, it is to your advantage to try and make the institution take as much risk subject to the same expected return as you possibly can. One of the worst sort of suggestions ever made in this field is that you should align the interests of managers with the interests of bank shareholders. Northern Rock was the darling of the London Stock Exchange only a month or two before the thing finally collapsed. And rightly so, because Northern Rock was taking a huge risk. And if you were a diversified shareholder, that was jolly good for you. Now, externalities and systemic problems of the kind we've just had. And you saw the amplified spirals uh, that Adair put up. One of the problems here is that these amplified spirals were actually exacerbated by regulation, not reduced by regulation. The problem here was that the regulators thought that what they should do was to relate regulation to assessed risk. That sounds sensible. But that the risk that they were assessing was cross-section risk. In the sense, is Bank A's portfolio riskier than Bank B's portfolio? What they ignored was the time series aspect uh, of risk. And here in the time series aspect of risk, risk appears to go down when asset markets are going up and when the economy is booming, non-performing loans are down, defaults are down, risk ratings get revised upwards, Asset markets are doing splendidly, etc., etc. So under the Basel II proposals, effectively the banks appeared to be better and better capitalized. And of course this was further amplified by mark-to-market, which means that as asset prices go up, this goes directly through to profits um, and to the assessment of capital. One of the reasons why we didn't move, or central bankers did not move quicker, to deal with the 2007 uh, subprime crisis was that they thought that the banking system was so strong, it had never, ever appeared stronger than in the summer of 2007. Um, Andy Haldane was talking about risk mirage. That risk mirage overcame the regulators. Indeed, the regulators were very largely responsible for introducing this risk mirage in the first place. This risk mirage was not just due to sort of bankers not understanding what was happening. I mean, very few people understood what was happening, and certainly the regulators didn't. And so when the thing turned down, it turned down with the kind of amplified spiral that we now have seen all too easily. And then, of course, we started to get bankruptcies. And the effect, as Adair was saying, of bankruptcies is just huge. And you've got various kinds of social costs. And here's social. I mean, it affects other people other than those directly involved as and former shareholders uh, of the bank itself. 
There were the very large direct and legal accounting costs. God knows what Lehman's will cost. The dislocation of markets. The loss of human capital and skills as people who work in these firms disappear. Admittedly, they frequently get rehired, so this is perhaps one of the least. One of the real problems is uncertainty. Nobody actually knew, and still many people don't know, who are creditors of Lehman's, what they're going to get out of it. If you don't know what you're going to get out, you're in, you're, you have real problems. And when there is uncertainty, people rush for safety. And it's the rush from risk into safety. It's, if you like, trying to hedge your position that actually causes the real problems. And then there's the loss of access to, of funds to debtors, to debtors and creditors. And as much loss of access to funds by debtors. I, most companies are in fact, or at least were before this crisis, net borrowers. So their need is to have additional access for, to funds to be able to borrow more. It's the unused overdraft that is your access to funds. And if that suddenly gets off, it gets cut off, you're in trouble. And as Adair was indicating, the real problems of this last crisis had nothing to do with protecting retail depositors. Retail depositors didn't lose hardly a penny. It was a it was a credit crisis, and, it, it, and that's where the, the real problems. So, what are we going to do? Well, let me start by saying that anybody, any fool, any single one of you, <laughs> in five minutes, if you really wanted to, and you were a dictator, could make banks much, much safer. All you've got to do is put on lots more capital. Larry Kotlikoff wants to have 100% capital. You can have a lot less leverage. We can shove on leverage ratios. No bank shall be more than 10 times levered, and if that doesn't do it, then they can make it five. More liquidity. Narrow banks can be defined as maybe 100% liquidity-based. Tighter margin controls. Uh, maximum loan-to-value ratio of 50%. I don't know. We can all do it. Why don't we? Why don't we just make banks safer? Well, one of the problems which again Adair showed is that we've had in the past 30 years a trend whereby credit has grown something like about 2% faster than retail deposits or basic deposits. Unlike the period from 1850 to about 1950, when credit and bank, and bank deposits grew virtually hand in hand. Incidentally, this is taken from a nice paper by Moritz Schulerich and Alan Taylor. Now, how did the banks deal with what Adair Turner showed in his particular diagram of loans going up like that and deposits going up like that? Well, they dealt with it in three ways. First, they got rid of all their liquid assets, their public sector debt. Uh, banks which had 30% holdings of public sector debt in the 1960s had zero. Uh, effectively by, uh, by 2007. Secondly, since they couldn't get enough retail deposits, they went out and they got wholesale deposits in increasingly short maturities. And thirdly, again, as Adair showed, they securitized. Now, all these factors, particularly the way that securitization worked, made the banking system increasingly risky. And all three as a result of the regulations that are being introduced, are getting turned rapidly into reverse. 
uh, net stable funding ratio, requirements for liquid assets and all that. Securitization, although I agree that some of the wilder CDO and CDO squared forms uh, were poor innovation, securitization under this kind of context I think was a, is and was and should be a good innovation and needs to be restarted, but it will take forever and it will be damn difficult to do it. Under these circumstances and with the growth of retail deposits growing relatively slower as a result of the slow growth of the economy, what is going to happen is that credit expansion is going to come down massively, massively, so that over the next sort of five to ten years, the rate of credit expansion is going to be a relatively small fraction, could be 50% or less with the rate of credit expansion that we've had in sort of previous periods, and that's in terms of real rather than nominal. And how are the Irish economies going to deal with that? I don't know. But there's a problem there, and it's a problem that people have better recognized. It may be that what is going to happen, that as Adair Turner again correctly stated, the rate of growth of credit expansion was mostly real estate, housing, and commercial property involved. And it may be that what is going to happen is that the sort of housing and commercial real estate uh, financing and growth is going to change dramatically. Another five minutes, oh good. Uh, another um, problem that we're going to have with regulation is what is known as the border problem between the regulated and the unregulated. The difficulty is that the regulations impose costs. If they weren't, if they weren't costly, if they didn't bite, I, they would be useless. So you needn't have them. So that you only have regulation because you prevent people being in the state which they want to be in. So that the regulated are clearly, effectively penalized in the sense they cannot be in their preferred position. So the unregulated do better. And that means that the regulation will tend to force people out of the regulated sector into the unregulated sector with results that we really can't easily tell. What's more, it's very difficult actually to observe quite which are those markets, institutions, and other elements of the financial sector which carry with them systemic risk. Systemic risk is a phrase that trips off all of our lips. But can we measure it? Have we got any definition of systemic risk? Do we know how to handle systemic risk? And the answer to that one, frankly, is not really. So, to be honest, we do not know what we are doing in the introduction of the regulations that we're about to introduce. It's not only the border problems between the regulated and the unregulated, it's between countries. The problem here is, as we all know, we've got a global financial system within a world in which the regulation um, is and indeed the legal basis is all done by the nation states. And again, as always, the intermediaries argue always for a level playing field. That's, uh, if you like, the intermediaries' main sort of argument for get to the lowest common denominator. But cycles, unfortunately, are not similar across countries. We've been in this huge construction real estate cycle and this was enormous in Spain, UK, Ireland, for example, but didn't really go at all in Germany or Italy, which means that if you're going to 
do counter-cyclical, you have got to have regulation that differs from one country to another. And that can be done, but it's quite difficult. Some of the other solutions are to try and make the financial system less global. But the problem here is that runs entirely against uh, the European dream of a single European financial system. And it also runs against the interests and desires of all, the, most, not all, but most of the major uh, financial intermediaries. One of the exercises that I do think could be done, but probably won't, is to try to get a single world legal basis for special resolution regimes. The reason I don't think it will be done is it would require a lot of countries to adjust their own legal basis for the, in the interests of trying to have a safer overall global system. I don't see that happening earlier. So, finally, how do we try and move towards a solution? Well, first, don't think in terms of trying to improve individual behavior. That's the wrong way to approach. Think in terms of trying to measure and assess systemic risk and try and introduce the regulation insofar as it reduces the systemic risk overall. Relate regulation to systemic risk. We've hardly scratched the surface of trying to understand how that could be done or do it properly analytically. One of the great problems of regulation has been that the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, because they had no legal basis, were not prepared ever to talk about sanctions. So what effectively they did was they talked about desired levels, 8% of tier 2. Now, the problem with the desired level is that markets and credit rating agencies then transform that directly into a minimum. And if it's a minimum, it doesn't act as a buffer. And if it doesn't act as a buffer, it's not very useful. I always told the story about the traveler arriving late at a station, middle of the night, going to a hotel a long way away where they don't know it. They see a single taxi. Thank God. And they trot up to the taxi and they say, please take me to my hotel. Terribly sorry. Can't do that. You see, the local bylaws require there to be one taxi at the station all the time. <laughs> now, that one taxi approach at the station is exactly what effectively, effectively in the past the Basel Committee has actually done. What you need to do is to have a ladder of sanctions which get tougher and tougher and tougher as you go below a much higher accepted level of extremely well capitalized or extremely well uh, stuffed with liquid assets and all that. Then again, there's more transparency, and I don't need to go into that, and the need to shift OTC derivatives to centralized clearing uh, counterparties, and finally adopt li living wills, which I've really talked about. We need and to deal... The big systemic institutions are almost identically the big cross-border financial intermediaries. And dealing with cross-border insolvencies at the moment is a nightmare. And the only way to deal with cross-border insolvencies is effectively to get a common legal basis, and we need to adopt living wills and a common legal basis behind that in order to deal with that particular situation. Now, whether enough of these will be done I rather doubt.